All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in and welcome to this first episode of Pseudo Intellectual Live. We are going to be streaming right here on YouTube, Lauren Chen channel, every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 Central. Uh, we're going to be having a lot of different guests on. It's going to be a good time today. I'm so excited to announce our first guest, someone who I've been following. I don't even know for how long now, but he is the one, the only, the artist formerly known as Sargon Avakad, uh, Carl Benjamin. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I didn't realize this was an inaugural episode of anything. Yeah, so, uh, well, um, you know, we've got a bunch of great guests lined up, but it just so happens that you are the first one and you're also the, the person I've been following for the longest. So I, I think it's pretty exciting. And oh. you've you've got so much going on now with you do the Lotus Eaters podcast. You have a whole crew, a whole company. Why don't you tell people a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, um, <clears throat> It became apparent that YouTube isn't a safe platform for people who are conservative and wish to substantively challenge the hegemonic narrative of the left. And so it became evident that we had to set up something that they couldn't just take away from us at the flick of a switch. Uh, it's not that we can't be deplatformed or anything, but it'll be a lot more effort to deplatform our own website than to simply turn off our Patreon or turn off our YouTube ad revenue or whatever it is. Uh, and so I set this up and people kept subscribing and it kept growing and we kept producing uh, what I think is really great content and we're going to produce even better content this year. And it just, it's done really well and I'm really proud and the whole team's amazing. So I'm really lucky. Yeah. And, and for people who haven't checked it out yet, it's, I mean, they have their main podcast, which has a bunch of different hosts. Uh, they're all great guys. I think we saw Connor from the show in the chat and you, you have different shows now with different hosts as well. So it's really been cool to see that grow. And uh, as an aside for parents out there, what I appreciate about you folks is you tend to keep it pretty clean. Since I had a kid, I'm noticing how much swearing there is everywhere. I'm trying to shield her from that as much as I can. I usually default to just watching train videos because those travel vlogs are pretty clean but I, yeah i do appreciate that i'm also hoping through like osmosis my daughter can grow up just naturally based if that's kind of what she's being bombarded with 24 7 but uh you know speaking of leftist narratives one of the things that i want to talk to you about is something that happened over on x and uh james Lindsay. a lot of you guys watching this you probably know him uh he's uh, what is it rational discourse is that his company um he's a classical liberal very very proud of that label who's a mathematician by trade um you and he got into a little bit of a disagreement over communism and liberalism and for people who aren't familiar with james he's very very anti-communist but also describes himself as a liberal why don't you give a little bit of backstory about what happened there and i guess your views about communism and liberalism because i think some people watching this might be surprised to hear your take before I begin, you have to forgive me, people listening, because I'm, I've been a bit ill uh, over the weekend, and I'm just coming off the end of it. So if I'm croaky or anything, sorry. So, um, <clears throat> where to begin? Um, I challenged James Lindsay's claim that communism is entirely separate from liberalism. Um, I don't think it is. I think it's directly downstream from liberalism, because, well genealogically that's how the philosophy goes uh, the problem stems from a promise that liberalism makes at the very foundational level um, 
all of the early liberals from about 1628 to around 1750, uh, if not slightly later, um, premise liberalism on the thought experiment of the state of nature. Now, to some, they realized that this probably wasn't the case, but we could assume that it was for further conclusions. But others actually thought this was really how man was. Now, what the state of nature was, uh, is supposed to have been, is a theoretical pre-social state that man lives in. So that's man before he lives in a society, before he lives with other men. And so before people are reliant on one another. And so all of the early liberal philosophers, or proto-liberal philosophers, have a that have their own take on what man was like in the state of nature. Now you've got people like Grotius and Hobbes who looked at that and said, well, hang on a second. If man is in a pre-social state of nature, then as Hobbes famously uh, coined it, it'll, his life will be nasty, brutish, and short. It's slightly different to that, but that's the way it uh, comes out in most dialogue when people are referencing it. Um, <clears throat> and so, I, I mean, that... That's probably true. If man's left in a forest on his own to scratch for his own survival, uh, his life is going to be quite rough. And this puts men in a state of war against all against all. Because if any man happens to have killed a deer or something, and he's carrying around a chunk of deer, well then any other man might kill him and take it, right? And so every man has to be suspicious of every man. And so for Hobbes in particular, the reason that we enter into society is to protect ourselves and our property from the depredations of our fellow man. And we do that by overawing them with a the higher power, which is the state. And this is why the state, in his view, is justified as being absolute. And then you had more thought development on this until you got to John Locke. And he thought that the state of nature actually was kind of bifurcated into two different ways. Uh, on one hand, it was the state of reason, in which everyone just calmly plows their own furrow of land and builds their own little huts and while and and the common reason of mankind will make every man think oh well you know i should live like that and that's fine uh, but some of mankind don't and they are in the state of war because they're, they're trying to steal your stuff and so men sacrifice a portion of their rights uh, in order to guarantee their property and that's all well and good until um slightly later on rousseau looked at this and said, well, you're not really representing man as he would be in a state of nature, because you haven't stripped away the social aspects of what it is to be a human being and got down to the absolute core, which is essentially the indivisible universal man. So before a society, a man doesn't have language, he doesn't have customs, he doesn't have habits, he doesn't have... Uh, lots of illnesses that are the product of society, like gout and things like that, the product of a, a rich diet and things like this. You don't have social status. Everyone is perfectly free and perfectly equal. And so that is what the early liberal thinkers were trying to return to. And Rousseau is the one who makes this the most explicit, but they're all clear about this. Uh, what you want is to be able to protect yourself and your property as if you're in the state of nature. Uh, and Rousseau therefore comes to the formulation that, yeah, actually everyone needs to be totally dependent on the state because instead of sacrificing some of your rights, you in fact exchange all of your rights and in return, your natural rights, and in return you get civil rights. And these civil rights are whatever the state decrees them to be and the state has total power over whether you 
are entitled to something or not. Now, Rousseau was still in the liberal, in this sort of original liberal tradition, even though you can see how this has morphed from Locke's view that actually you, your rights are natural, but you sacrifice some of them to the state in order to get protection. Whereas Rousseau has taken this and said, no, you, you sacrifice all of them and then the state gives you what you want, uh, what you get. So the state takes on nature itself. It becomes nature and is the provider of all things. But Rousseau and his perfect utopia, he thought that everyone would be a, a small landowner. So he thought that everyone would essentially be sort of a, a sort of petty bourgeois shopkeeper or smallholder or cobbler or something like this. And so everyone would just do their own work and own a little patch of land or a single building or something like that. And everyone would live in a, con in a state of constant political awareness where you would go to a public gathering like in ancient Athens, you'd go to the Knicks and you'd uh, have your say in democracy and via the vote, the general will of the entire state would be revealed and politics would continue on like this. Now, that is kind of true in the liberal view, right? That is, that is if you were to assume that man began in the state of nature and you were going to construct a state that would essentially replicate the state of nature and create a world in which you could live in society in the state of nature, uh, Rousseau is the most correct on that argument because his argument is, well, in the state of nature, man is not dependent on himself, on, on one another at all. They are most dependent on the state. And so, and he literally just explicitly says, we should be extremely and entirely dependent on the state and not dependent on one another. So, okay, well, that's true because in Rousseau's view, <clears throat> vanity is a consequence of society. We look at each other and we want to be looked at in return. We want people to appraise us and to value us and to regard us. And this is where social rank and hierarchy come in. And if you have ever used Twitter, you know that's exactly true. That's exactly true. That's what people are like in a society. Um, but the thing that the liberals have to kind of concede uh, and science and archaeology have absolutely confirmed these things is that there was no such thing as a pre-social man man has always lived in a society uh, rousseau gives the example of monkeys and wolves as to how man can live outside of society and uh they're social animals <laughs> they, they live in groups <laughs> <laughs> Just like chimpanzees and gorillas and like, they, they, I don't know why he gives the example of social animals to bolster his point on that. Um, but the, the point being, man has never lived alone. And you can look at all the archaeological record. It's small family groups, sort of tri tribes, clans, you know, like a few dozen people living together. There was never a pre-social man. And so that presupposition was just wrong. But it is also wrong to suggest that that pre-social man has property. That pre-social man does not have property, which is why he comes into society in the first place. That's why, for Locke, Hobbes, and Rousseau, the man, men come together to protect that thing that they have built up with their own labor. And so, Karl Marx is not wrong to say, oh, you promised liberty and equality. And in fact, in the pre-social state of nature, these things were one in the same. To be free was to be equal because everyone had no dependence on one another and they owned nothing. And so, and it is property ownership that is the root of inequality. Rousseau identifies this. He's completely right about it. In Rousseau, in uh, the social contract, he's got 
or is it the no, the discourse and inequality? He's he's got a part where he's tracing what he thinks is the development of mankind from the pre-social state of nature, and says the first person to ever mark down, stake out a plot of land, and say this is mine and not yours, he is the person who ruined mankind, and everyone should have torn up the stakes and said no, the earth belongs to everyone. And yet Rousseau thinks that everyone should own their own little plot of land with property, because. Uh, he's not being intellectually consistent, whereas Marx comes along and says, no, actually, if you look at this, what you've done is this is all a post hoc rationalization for the bourgeoisie, the property owning class, the middle classes of the sort of 17 and 1800s to justify not having to live under the thumb of the king. Well, that's fair. Obviously, we all want liberty because I agree with the promise that liberalism made at the beginning we will return to the state of nature where we can all just be free and equal. You've given yourselves the freedom, but you haven't given people the equality. And now, to get back to that state of nature, we want the abolition of private property, which is essentially what you're promising when you say we're going to live in society as we lived in the state of nature. That's why communism and liberalism are so tightly connected. That is why communism has and always will dog liberalism. In every time and in every place where liberalism has flourished, there have always been communists nipping at the edge going, but we've still got property. Some people aren't equal to others. You promised us equality as a core liberal value. What now? Well, you know, it's interesting. So you and James have discussed this before on a stream. Um, I don't think there was any, I guess, determination that was arrived at. Uh, this room was about, I think, an hour or so long. But mm -hmm. from what I can understand of James Lindsay's perspective, and he's a very smart guy. I think you'd, like, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But I think he, as a mathematician, is attempting to apply the rigidity of mathematics mm -hmm. to political theory, which I don't really think works because as you've just explained very, very thoroughly, uh, political philosophies evolve over time. So when I think someone like James Lindsay thinks of classical liberalism, he is very focused on, well, it protects, in, it protects individual freedoms and property rights. Communists don't want that. Therefore, how could you possibly say that these two things can even be related to each other? But what I think you've gotten at is it's not necessarily... I guess the, the idea that individual liberty is bad or that, you know, I guess classical liberalism doesn't apply that. I think it's the the matter of equality, which is where yes. things always get a little bit sticky. And we see this, especially in, I guess, American <clears throat> discourse from the civil rights movement. And there's been a whole a whole debate about whether MLK was even someone worth worth idolizing this past Monday it was MLK Day here in, in the States, yeah. um, or just a secret Marxist, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, the fight for equality under the law. I think a lot of people agree with that. But that's also, as you said, how the Marxists really began interjecting themselves into American discourse, because it's like, all right, equality under the law. But what about all the other ways that we lack equality? And, mm -hmm. you know, nowadays, there are a lot of classical liberals who like to make a distinction between like, oh, well, we can we can advocate for equality. It's just equity that we're against. And therefore, we can make this distinction between us and the communists. But I think if we are to be logically consistent, that that distinction doesn't necessarily, as you explained, apply under a liberal paradigm, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's completely correct. Um, the Civil Rights Act is the moment that Lockean liberalism died and Rousseauian liberalism took over because Lockean liberalism is entirely negative. Right? The state must not do certain things in order to protect those remaining natural rights that you have. These are all things that must not happen. As soon as you have a positive right, then you have switched into the Rousseauian view of liberalism, which means that the state now is the provider of rights. Your rights are not inherent to you. They are now given to you by the state. And therefore, the right can become anything you want. A right could literally... I mean, in Britain, we had Jeremy Corbyn saying, broadband is a human right. Well, I mean, that doesn't make any sense <laughs> to anyone else. But in the Rousseauian paradigm, it's totally feasible that the state could say, no, I, I decree that all of you have broadband. Therefore, this is a right because I have taken on the role of nature in the new paradigm. And the Civil Rights Act is where that begins in the United States. Um, so, yeah, it's unfortunately just not something that I think is going to be undone. And I don't think a return to Lockean liberalism is going to happen because there are just too many people who will be able to make the essential point that in liberalism, freedom and equality are the same thing. They do amount to the same thing. They harmonize into the same concept. If we are not equal, that means someone has property at someone else's expense. And that's the really like the undermining of the entire paradigm. Because liberalism begins with the abstract universal man, the actual individual in the state of nature, who has neither property nor obligation to someone else, well then everything from that is kind of a problem while property exists. But um, th there's another problem with property as well. And that's something that people, I think, rarely think about when it comes to property rights, is that property rights really happen in other people's heads, right? You you don't need to have any thought or discourse of, with yourself about whether you own something. So if you can just like pick up like this or whatever, right, okay, I have this, it's mine, I can dispose of it as I wish, that's that's absolutely mine, and I possess it. And so I can, this is just my air conditioning uh, remote, but this will do for an example. I possess this, uh, and so, and I'm holding it, and so this is my property, I can do with it as I will. That's great. But what happens when I put this down, and I walk off? That property has to be in someone else's mind as being not theirs, and not free for them to just pick up and go, oh great, I just found this in the state of nature. Wonderful, I'm going to walk off with it. No, they have to recognize that this is a thing that is not theirs, and it obviously belongs to someone else, and they're not to interfere with it. And so this is why a property right is a form of relation. And so while we're living in society, and we're not in the state of nature because we have relations with other men, then we will always be... Uh, the, the liberals will always be hypocrites and liars and the communists will always be able to level that charge at them they will always say well hang on a second you're reliant on someone else for something even if it's something as small as don't steal my stuff they will always get to that and that's why communists don't care about theft by the way they don't whoa, see whoa. any problem with this are, are you i guess are you trying to say that do you view property rights as a positive right no it's a social right so if you're if you're on an island and it's it's not it's it's a it's a an agreement that people have with one another right um if you're on an island then you have all of the natural rights that the thought experiment of the state the state of nature would imbue with you with you are alone that no one can interfere with anything that you do uh, so anything you build no one can interfere with 
it'll be yours forever until nature destroys it, until you break it yourself, or something like that. But the, the concept of property actually requires another person, when you are living in society, to have the same thought as you. As in, that's this thing belongs to me. It doesn't belong to you. And if they don't think that, then they will not see any reason not to just pick this up and take it away with them. This is the problem with property rights and the state of nature and why communism will always loom. It, it relies on an understanding between, well, you and everyone else, frankly. So I guess with that in mind, what what is the alternative? I remember that uh, a while ago, you were very proudly yourself a classical liberal. And, yeah. uh, you know, you you even, I think, called yourself a liberalist at one point. Yeah. That seems like a far cry from the criticisms you're now launching against liberalism. And I do after yeah. this, I do want to talk a little bit about where rights come from in general. But let's let's talk about the solution first before we go any further. What is what is the answer to the communist? Because James Lindsay, um, he's very ardent. And I, I bring yeah. him up specifically because of the interaction on Twitter. But I think he represents a pretty large group of classical liberals who maybe were formerly left-wing, but now perhaps identify as centrist, but who come from that tradition mm -hmm. and who are very entrenched in, I guess, the belief in institutions as they currently stand. Because something else about James Lindsay that I find curious is that he's also opposed to something like school choice. Um, he seems to be of the impression that the institutions as they exist are still, um, they're still serviceable. They can still be won back. But I, even I from disagree. a classical liberal perspective, why should a parent not be able to choose the school their child goes to? That I still don't understand. From what I, I, I believe he said, uh, but there it's too, like they haven't, they don't have the, the people who are in favor of school choice don't have the framework to ensure that those other institutions aren't also captured by the communists. Now, in my belief, communists. I mean, classical liberalism, I, I don't have, I don't have the same critiques of it as I do communism in so far as I do think they are distinct, even though one enables the other. But I, I think at its core, classical liberalism is not an offensive ideology in that like you can't defend from communism with classical liberalism. James Lindsay disagrees. What's your position on the antidote to this? Uh, well, ju just uh, before I answer that, um, you can <clears throat> defend from communism with classical liberalism but the problem is it will render you as ignorant and a hypocrite uh, you can say well no we're going to have property and that's it uh, but then you have to admit that you're abandoning the value of equality uh, you don't value that actually you value liberty and property and that's fine and i i personally would be more than happy with that uh, i think equality is actually a kind of mildly demonic value actually now you now we now we start to get into the weeds of it um because it actually destroys everything. Everything that we have is destroyed by the concept of equality. Uh, and so really, I think we should have thought about what that actually means. Um, For sure. But, but I guess to, to push back on that a little bit, yeah. yes. You know, if, if, if you're a classical liberal and you're enforcing individual property rights, some might say, well, there you go. Communism stopped dead in its track. But as you've so clearly outlined, we live in a society. So right now, unfortunately <laughs> yeah, for a lot of my libertarian friends, what I what I often talk to them about is I, I feel like a lot of the civil liberties that we have, they're actually not under threat from the state, but non-state actors. I mean, when we have 90% of employers using things like DEI in their hiring practices, mm -hmm. when the even the education institutions 
are filled with activists who are brainwashing the next generation. How does a classical liberal approach combat that communist activism that is actively happening? Like, how, how can we just say, well, property rights in the face of an entire almost generation of activists who've inserted themselves into positions of power at every step of the way? Well, not very well. Um, and again, this comes from the liberal idea of universality. Uh, you'll notice that the diversity, equity and inclusion folks, they're, they're, the whole point of what they're trying to do is to bring absolutely everyone under the same banner. They want to have a universal for everything. And again, it's because the liberal worldview promises equality and liberty as the same concept for every single human being. When in fact, this has never happened for any human being. Uh, the pre-social man is a man who's never existed and he never can exist. And so the whole thing is a nonsense really. Um, but the, you know, you are right. Like classical liberalism can only win, uh, what I guess you'd call majoritarian victories. It can never win conclusive and decisive victories over, the actual philosophy that it's opposing. So it can say, well, look, we've got 500 people who are in favor. You've got 200 people who are against, therefore we win. But that doesn't decide the argument that just decides the immediate issue. So, okay, fair enough. But the people who lost, uh, do not think they lost the argument. And so they continue making their arguments and making their arguments more and more sophisticated. And that's really what the 20th century was, is the socialists coping and seething over the failure of communism and figuring out how they can use the liberal priors that communism agrees with to overthrow liberalism and bring about communism. And that's honestly why we're in the position we are now. That's what intersectionality is for. Um, they will just continue because you're still committed to the promise as a liberal of equality. And while liberals are committed to this, then it means that the communists will always have purchase. There will always be people who are disenfranchised, people who do not have what they think they should have, people who frankly are lazy and just don't want to have to work, people who are actually scum and for whom the laws are there designed to oppress. Uh, and they will say, well, hang on a second, we don't have equality. And so the, the word equality will just be expanded to everything. And there's really not much the classical liberal can do about that because they are committed to the value itself. And so until the liberals can abandon the value of equality, communism will always have hooks in them. And the thing is, abandoning the value of equality actually undermines the very basis on which classical liberalism is built. And for example, it's the state of nature uh, scenario on which the American Revolution is built. Like the, mm -hmm. the presupposition that we can come together and form our own governments. Well, that's entirely what the American Revolution is built upon. And if that's not true, and spoiler alert, it's not really true, uh, then the whole thing becomes invalid. So the classical liberals would have to find an entirely different framework uh, to replace their foundation with and then build off upon that. It's not that it can't be done. And it's not that it can't. I mean, like there's the thing is, we're in a very ideological age at the moment. Uh, whether people realize it or not, ideology is permeating. Savoy Zizek is right about this. Uh, ideology permeates everything. And I think that the reason that people like James Lindsay got so upset with me for pointing out actually liberalism is going to change because it's already kind of failed uh, in a way. Um, I think the reason they got so upset with me is because they don't know what any alternative is. Because a, the average Christian is not angry with me. When I say, look, liberalism has this root problem that we really have to address if we want to get rid of the communists, 
If you want to stop people from being communists, you have to stop making the promise of freedom and equality. Because to the communists, you'll notice they say, look, we want everyone to have everything, so everyone is perfectly free and perfectly equal. That is literally the foundational promise of liberalism. So they're not doing anything outside of this tradition at all. And if we want to stop those people from trying to take things away, we have to find a different tradition. Now, the early liberals were well aware that atheism was dangerous to the liberal project. They were well aware that, I mean, John Locke thought that atheism should be illegal as well as Catholicism. Um, but he was, he was just, yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> uh, he, he was, he was attacked by um, idealists like Berkeley for saying, look, if you create a mechanical universe, then God will die in the minds of men because he's not necessary for the world, for the universe to continue functioning. And Locke just like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Well, that has happened. That's exactly what's happened. I'm one of those products. I'm an atheist. You know, I, I didn't choose to be. I was just raised in an atheist society, and this is just how I came out. And so it is absolutely the case that this has happened. So Christians, when I say, well, look, atheism, uh, liberalism uh, is wrong with the foundations, they don't get upset because they have a moral foundation of their own that is separate to liberalism. However, with the materialist liberal atheist and all of the dogmatic atheists, uh, liberals you'll notice are atheists. You know, you'll notice that every single one of these hardcore liberal activists in any stripe, in any stripe, you know, whether it's a radical communist progressive or the James Lindsay types, they're all atheists. Mm -hmm. right? And the problem that they have with me attacking the root of liberalism is they don't have an alternative. They don't. So what I'm telling them is essentially, you are not a moral person. I'm going to tear this up and look at these disgusting rotten roots. We're going to throw this away and they will be set adrift with literally no moral compass. That's why they're so upset by me doing this. Um, so I have to say, well, okay, was Christianity that bad actually? You know, well then, you know, from an atheist <laughs> Sorry, perspective, that's what I find really interesting over the years when I've been watching your I don't know if it's fair to say a political evolution, but I think you very, an evolution. you very accurately point out that a lot of the, the classical liberals, uh, the secular atheists, you know, when push comes to shove, either they don't have an objective moral framework to stand on or the moral framework that they're operating upon is actually just based off of Christianity, which they simultaneously, uh, you know, oftentimes deride. So personally, as an atheist who is also skeptical about classical liberalism, where should our morality and things like the concept of natural rights derive from? Like, how do you how do you reconcile that? What do you personally use as your moral framework? Uh, I use or, or are you going, oh, so you're going to do the Jordan Peterson route. Yeah. It's, it seems to be, um, something that is true. It is absolutely true that we've inherited uh, a moral tradition from our ancient past and it absolutely has a proven track record of results. Um, a lot of Christians are going to say, yeah, but it does lean very heavily on Christianity, doesn't it? And I'll say, yes, sure. I'm not opposed to Christian morality. There's doesn't seem to be anything wrong with it, frankly. I don't really see what the objection to it is, actually. You know, the, the only, the objection from the liberal atheist seems to be, I don't believe in God. It's like, okay, but you're not saying you don't like the morality then. What you're saying is you need it to be rationally justified. Um, but in every other case, you're prepared to be utilitarian and say, well, it just works. So why can't you be utilitarian in this case and just say, well, it just works. Uh, I don't need to personally believe in God to see the effect of Christianity and the good it seems to do for actual Christians as well. Like if I met Christians who are bad people or mean spirited or just 
doing immoral things, I'd be like, okay, well, I don't want them to be like that, but I don't ever meet Christians like that. I'm sure someone will say, well, what about the Westboro Baptist Church? It's like, okay, but I'm looking around, bro, and I just don't see any Westboro <laughs> Baptist Church. You know what I mean? Like That seems to be like five really dysgenic, uh, awful people who are using Christianity as a cover. There seem to be lots of good people who are good Christian people, and they seem to be getting on just fine. So I'm, I'm really not terribly averse to this. Um, but that, that does, but you, the, the point you're making, the question you're raising is exactly legitimate. Well, if liberalism can't be the moral axis around which the modern atheist revolves, where does he go? And that's scary for a lot of people. That puts them in a position right. where they genuinely don't know how to feel about themselves. Because the thing is, it's entirely possible that a lot of the things we're doing are actually really, really immoral. And I'm not going to mention any particular movements that are concerned about gender and are doing terrible things to kids or anything. But um, yeah, it might might well be that we're in a position where we're doing really immoral things. So. Right. And I, I think that's probably more likely than a lot of center leftist classical liberals would like to admit. And it's mm -hmm. interesting because the way you talk about Christianity, it reminds me of two people, Ayan Hirsi and also Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you followed Ayan Hirsi um, she's someone who previously, Not closely. she previously underwent uh, female genital mutilation uh, as a child. I, I forget which country specifically, but somewhere on the African continent. And uh, she eventually ended up. Yeah, I think that sounds right. She eventually ended up moving to Europe and uh, was for a long time at the forefront of the, I guess, humanist secularist online movement. Uh, that's how I became familiar with her work. She does a lot of great things and is obviously a very vocal critic of Islam. Not that long ago, she actually came forward and, uh, in support of Christianity. And I, I believe now even calls herself a Christian. And a lot of people, a lot of these atheist types that I was following, uh, they watched her video and their critique was like, well, okay, it seems like you're not actually professing a testimony uh, that we would see in a lot of Christian churches where you express how you've been saved, how you've come to have faith. This almost seems more utilitarian as in these are the reasons why I believe Christian values and traditions are superior. That's not necessarily being a Christian, though. Uh, no. And I think Jordan Peterson, he he does something similar. You have that infamous debate with Sam Harris where you go around for, I don't even know how many hours, talking about what actually is truth. Jordan Peterson, he always says, and I've asked him about this pointedly in interviews, like, do you believe in God? Well, I behave as if I do, and that's really the same. But is it, though? Yeah. Is it that? That's not yeah. the same. No, that's not. not the same, you know, uh, practically speaking and theologically speaking. Like, I mean, I pay my taxes. Is that the same as me believing that taxes are just? Absolutely not. Would you say yeah. that? that kind of encapsulates where you are personally? I, I totally agree with the frame that this is not sufficient to say that you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, if merely, I mean, one can accidentally behave in Christian ways and not be a Christian. Um, and I do think, I, I don't think I would ever be able to claim to be a Christian without having a sincere belief in something. Um, I, I think that would be wrong, and I don't think I could bring myself to do it. Um, but I think that it, the, I think that the, the, the secular liberal atheist types like myself uh, need to understand that actually there are things about the human experience that can't really be rationally classified and calculated and whether we believe that it's divine inspiration or not um the 
the experience of having a, the, the spiritual experience itself is a part of human nature and contains within it something that is good and something that does good for people and so i i find myself looking back into the traditions of england and thinking there is something a bit spiritual about it for me as in i i realize that actually i'm part of a river that has been rushing for a thousand plus years and i'm just at my point of that of that rushing river and then my children will come after me and their children will come after them and you realize that actually you are part of something bigger than yourself and actually there is legitimacy to it the reason this lasted so long is because it was good and because it worked and because it was effective and successful and so the moral values that have been built up in this are time tested so they might seem weird and the one of my favorite things in the world is edmund burke's justification of prejudice he prejudice is the solution to problems you've forgotten exist and if you had just been prejudiced about something you actually wouldn't be getting the problems you're getting for failing to understand why the prejudice was there in the first place because prejudices are not actually irrational they are the kind of articulated and inherited uh, rights and wrongs that come out of our traditions and so you don't know why you have a prejudice against something, but there is a kind of iterative function that has brought the prejudice into existence. And okay, I'm not, I'm not saying we should be prejudiced, but I think that what this is saying to us is you, you think on too narrow a timescale when you do any kind of rationalistic thinking, you need to think on a very long timescale. You need to think in a very broad way as well. So you've got, uh, a much more three-dimensional view of what morality is and then you but realize that actually the the, the counter to that from a rationalist materialist almost nihilistic standpoint is that without mm -hmm. that i don't want to say supernaturalism but uh you know the idea of looking at it from a macro scale through the generations it almost becomes moot right there's there's a lot of people the secular atheists who will say well but why why does the concept of not only looking behind us but in front of us yeah. for future tradition or for future generations why does that intrinsically matter and i think if we are operating from a completely materialistic standpoint there's not actually a good reason for that which uh, is why well that, hang on hang on hang on i i can argue that um there is uh because essentially it requires us to admit that we are not quite as smart as we think we are uh there are things there are there are aspects of human life that can't be rationally considered um the the philosopher michael Oakes, I, I feel um, like the sam harris types would disagree but sorry continue well they can disagree but the thing is we've got lots and lots and lots of examples of it right uh, for example you could read every manual has ever been written about painting you could read absolutely every piece of work a hundred million words on how to paint but you will never produce a, a good painting. You'll never produce the Mona Lisa because actually there are aspects to painting that cannot simply be described. They have to be felt, they have to be done. They have to have been engaged with on a practical level. Uh, this, this is what philosopher Michael Oakeshott called practical wisdom, uh, practical knowledge and book learning. He would call technical knowledge, something you can impart to one another. But the problem is whenever you are describing something, you are abstracting away from the thing itself. 
And as John Locke pointed out, all abstraction is also subtraction. To identify, for example, again, going back to my remote control, what this is, I have to subtract away from a bunch of things. If I want to say, well, this is white, it's got buttons on it. It's like, okay, that's true, but I'm not telling you the weight of the thing. I'm not telling you what it's made of. I'm not telling you, like, there are millions and millions and millions of things about this you could pick out, but I'm only focusing on the ones I think are important. And so all of that information is being left behind as I point out what this is. Uh, and this is the problem with absolutely everything. So there are going to be things that you didn't know you should describe in order to properly encapsulate what the experience of the thing is. And the only way you learn that kind of knowledge is by doing the thing itself. Like, you can't tell me how I should feel when I put the, pa the, the paintbrush to the paper and when I swish it around to create a particular form, right? You, you can't actually describe that. And may, you know, and even if you could, would it mean anything to me if I could understand it? You know, if you're like, okay, use the, you know x amount of pounds of pressure and you do this angle and, and this speed, I'd be like, well, I, I can't interpret that. But what I can do is practice doing it and get the muscle memory myself until eventually I know exactly how that works, and eventually I can become like a Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, but that can never that can never be imparted other than through direct experience, and so that we have a whole world. Of, of of knowledge there. And we actually have an entire library full of philosophy that's generally just called wisdom philosophy, because that's what, what we're talking about. It's wisdom that comes from direct experience and not uh, intelligence and intellect that comes and technique that comes from book learning. And this this shows that on one side you have something that requires a high intelligence and requires uh, a learning capacity and various cognitive functions that are all well and good. But on the other side, you have a form of knowledge that one of the key components to it is time. You can't get the knowledge of what happens over and over and over from any other way other than doing it repeatedly and experiencing over a period of time. And so the, the rationalist will always be stopped at that point where they say, well, look, I can't identify any negative consequences from this thing, and therefore there are no negative consequences. However, the wise person who has done this or seen this done many times will say, well, if you do that, this will happen, and I'm sure of it. And they'll say, well, you can't show that it's deductively going to be true. No, I can't deductively show it's going to be true, but I can inductively show that it's going to be true, and there we go, and it turns out to be true. So that we, we can argue this case. But I feel like in a certain sense, even the the notion of needing that time, the generations to have that experience and impart that wisdom, perhaps in, in order to arrive closer to under, an understanding of an ultimate form of science or art, beauty or truth, even that categorization as a positive thing, that's almost inherently a, spir a spiritual one, right? There the, the the cow does not long for an understanding of the grass. The fact that we as humans have that desire to understand the universe, to impart that wisdom, if we were operating completely on materialistic levels, why why would that inherently be a better thing than living in the now for our current pleasure? Uh, well, I mean, I to to address the first bit, I don't I don't see anything wrong with calling it spiritual to be honest. Um, the, the problem is the word is loaded. And so a person spiritual, might... spiritual, not religious. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 
I don't know if I believe that distinction, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if I agree with it. Um, I mean, you, you could call it spiritual. I'm not, the, the, it's definitely metaphysical. It's definitely something right. that exists, but isn't a material thing that you can weigh or measure or monetize, you know, like it's, it's, it's not, it's not something like that, but it is something that's substantive and it is something that's real. And I don't think that we should deny ourselves it. I don't see why we would look at this marvelous inheritance, a, a, a public stock of wisdom that has built up over the centuries and didn't just deny it. What, what would be the point? We'd, I think that we're losing some terribly valuable information there. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't see, I don't see why we can't. And so I, so the reason why I'm kind of, I'm, I, I'm, going down this train of thought because mm. my my husband he's he he studied philosophy and he's a very rational person aside from the decision to study philosophy um and i think there's a lot of people I studied who, it too so you know. <laughs> uh just so many arts degrees out there goodness um but i i think a lot of people when they are confronted with christianity uh, there is this conception, especially for people who are not familiar with the philosophical backings of Christian tradition, to look at it as almost an emotion-based frame of mind, uh, a belief that is almost in opposition to rationality. But I feel like from a philosophical standpoint, you're almost making the argument for perhaps not theism, but indirectly maybe deism. I mean, there there's an argument to be made that you know whatever it is that we are pursuing is that not in some way, I don't want to say a form of God, but you know, the ultimate truth, the whatever is at the end of the tunnel, the generations that we are leading to and what we are trying to accomplish in all of that. Is that not a heaven? Is that not a God? Not necessarily, you know, this is not to say that this translates directly to a Christian belief, but more broadly, this is not, we're not on atheist standing right now. We're not at least on not materialist in my standing if that's what you mean. We are, we are talking about a form of metaphysics. Um, I'm not making a commitment to a religious position that demands the existence of God. Um, I'm referencing something that is definitely real. Uh, there, there's definitely a, a political and philosophical and moral tradition. Um, and I mean, you can say, well, you could logically drive it back and say, well, eventually if everything was just created, then it must be God at the beginning of it. And maybe that's true. I don't really care actually, to be honest. Um, but I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sidestep the argument with that. Um, the, we are definitely in non-materialist realm. Um, and I don't think it necessarily requires us to believe in a God. Um, but it does require us to have a metaphysic. Mm. So, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say I've got the answer to that either. Uh, there are going to be lots and lots of people above my pay grade who will have answers to that. Um, but it's something that I'll think about going on at the future, but I haven't got a ready answer for it. Well, on, on that note, I do want to take this opportunity to let you guys know about a, an exciting thing happening over at Blaze TV. So there is a new uh, new series that we're doing over at Blaze called Blaze Originals, where different Blaze hosts are going on the ground to report on different parts of the national discourse. I was recently in Maui looking into the fires in Lahaina. Glenn Beck himself uh, has a new mini documentary out on Colony Ridge. I have the trailer right now, so let's check it out. Before we move on, I want to talk to Carl a little bit about, uh, I guess, dating culture and modern relationships, <laughs> which will be fun.
By the time Joe Biden's out of office, there'll be about 10 million new people in here. If you have 10 million people coming in, where are they living? Look at the size of this. The fastest growing development in Texas is just a 30 minute drive from Houston. Any idea of how many are illegal? The majority. The majority. The majority. I'm like Sears and Roebuck. I have a product, I created it, I sell it. Does it bother you at all, just culturally, mm -hmm. in America, to have 150,000 people that are speaking another language? Own something of your own, own your own home. That's what we're trying to create for people here. If it's the American dream, why don't you advertise in English? They are going against humanity, against Americans, not Americans a lot of races, a lot of people. Like, we were dumb for even falling into this. But I mean, what, what do we do? What do we do? If you import the third world, you end up becoming more third world. I've started in Afghanistan. Uh, every war-torn or third world country always has that same distinct smell, and it's the smell of burning trash. You can see all the undeveloped plots. This could, right, this could right, become right, massive. Right. Gunfire shooting up there, just pow, 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 coming come in front of my house. My wife's advice was, don't piss off any cartels. <laughs> I said, I'll try. Is this the future for America? Because this is the path we're on as an entire country. This is a, this is a completely new population. Very exciting stuff. Uh, so you guys can check that documentary out now by going to blazeoriginals.com and save on your subscription with the code Colony Ridge. And my Maui doc is out on YouTube for free for everyone to watch. So I will also leave the link to that in the description for this video. So you guys can check it out. And uh, I was working with the crew behind Tucker Carlson Originals. They were amazing, very professional. It looks, it looks amazing. Uh, I'd always wanted to go to Maui, but I never thought I'd be going there to cover natural disasters. So vibes were off, but still, it's a great, great documentary. You should check it out. Uh, now, I would love to talk to you a little bit about modern relationships, because uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about the Lotus Eaters podcast, when you're on, you you give insights from the position of, of a dad and a husband uh, into the, the crazy world of dating that we see before us. Now, I I think the last time that I, I was single was around eight years ago. So much has changed now in the dating landscape from, I mean, Tinder was around when I was single, but uh, there's a million other apps now. And not just that, but like hookup culture in general is so much mm -hmm. bigger than I ever thought it would get. And you even have like the discussion around body counts now. I, I'd never heard that term before a few years ago, but now we have an entire podcast dedicated to, I mean, finding women who have body counts in the, you know, even triple digits. So yeah. how, how happy are you basically to not be in a position where you, you are looking for a partner nowadays? Yeah, I'm really glad I'm married. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, on, on a daily basis, I'll see something on Twitter that I just think, oh, good, a new low, fantastic, well done, humanity. Um, no, I, I mean, I just, I do not envy young men and women today having to try and find uh, a partner to spend their life with and it's not it, it doesn't seem to be in their minds that that's what they should be looking for either actually um it, it's 
it's a totally debauched culture that they're living in right now. Because, I mean, at least when I was young, you still thought, well, I will get married. And you know that the women around you wanted to get married. Right. And so when you got a long-term girlfriend, you knew that having a life partner was on the cards, right? Um, that just doesn't seem to be the case now. I, like, it just doesn't seem to be a common view that young people have. And I feel really bad for them. You know, it's like, okay, so are you expected to just be a singleton forever and just continually having dissatisfying sex with strangers or short-term partners until you're too old to be appealing to anyone? I mean, what's the plan exactly? You know, you're not going to live, you're not going to be 21 forever. I mean, I, I I saw Shuan Head a while ago tweeted out something to the effect of, you know, as someone, she kind of grew up in a similar situation where dating was just implicitly to lead to marriage. Everyone just, you know, you mm. get married. For people who are not of that mindset, like, what what is the point? Aside from temporary companionship, maybe carnal desires, but without the idea that this will is part of something greater, it leads to a final end goal. It, it just, mm. it would seem so hollow and pointless to me. But uh, I, I know nowadays the conversation has almost flipped where if you do want to get married, then that almost makes you the outlier. I have a sister-in-law who's still single and she was saying that when you're on dating apps now, it's so common. And you know, she lives near a big city to just, everyone's polyamorous. Like, yeah. that's just a thing now. I had never heard of that before right. a few years ago, but now amongst young people, it's like, that's almost the norm. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't even, I like, we, we did a Vox pop the other day and, uh, this one woman answering the question, the, the question was on representation and demographics. Uh, the question was, well, what percentage of the country do you think are gay? And one, one girl said 60%, uh, <laughs> what, uh, the, the most common one was about 35%. And so they were shocked to hear that it's 2%. Right. And this one woman just said, but everyone I know is gay. And it's like, right. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. And I imagine it's, there's a lot of crossover on that Venn diagram when it comes to uh, being polyamorous and things like that. Um, I can only assume that dating apps are just not for finding relationships. I mean, I've, I, I've never used a dating app because I'm too old, thank God. Uh, and so I, but I just hear horror stories from them, and it's just like, well, it's just hookups. And it's like, okay, well, great. If you want to hook up, then use a dating app, dating app. Um, but if you don't, just meet someone in real life. Because again, coming back to the, um, coming back to the, the 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 wisdom aspect, there's something about the first impression in the flesh that is totally different to anything you can present on a dating app. You know, you can't, you can't really show who you are uh, or any of your personal charisma or lack thereof uh, when you meet someone in, in on a dating app. But when you meet someone in real life, things are real and there's all sorts of factors you can't consciously account for that come into whether someone finds you interesting or not. And so just that's how, that's how historically our parents and grandparents and great grandparents all met. That's how you can meet too. Just don't don't bother with the apps. Right. And I think I'm I consider myself very lucky to have met my husband through friends. And I, I look at the way that dating is situated around the, I guess, the tech side of things now. And I think, and obviously there are studies about this, but it's really men who are mostly disadvantaged by the fact that we're not having those face-to-face -face interactions. Because I mean, if we're just being honest, women can be pretty harsh on a man's looks 
that's yeah. just established. I think it's like 80% <laughs> of men are ranked as below average from women. But what men, a lot of men don't understand is that women will still be willing to go out with a man they don't necessarily find attractive if he has other qualities, if he's charismatic. I've, I've, had friends and it will literally have a conversation. Oh, you going on a date? Like, yeah. It's like, is he cute? And that might be a question a woman might actually ask another. But if you're, if you're a man, I feel like the question of, Oh, is, do you find her attractive? Would, would you ever ask out a woman you didn't find attractive if you were single? Yeah. I've never, I mean, I, you know, I guess when a friend of yours is going on a date, Oh, he's good looking. And he goes, yeah, you know, obviously it's, it, I guess, but, it's it's not it's not just the physical looks, is it? That's the thing. Uh, women are often attracted to charisma in yes. a way that men aren't really attracted to. Charisma, um, confidence, humor, none yeah. of these things that can actually, you can display them on a one-page dating profile. And I yeah. think there's a lot of men who are coming short of, because maybe they're not as classically handsome, but you know, they have high riz as, as the kids say, but because they're in a paradigm where that's not necessarily go going to, going to matter to the women anymore, they're kind of falling by the wayside. And it's, it's really sad because I think traditionally when we had more one-on-one -on -one interactions, women, I think, you know, if a man, I feel like if he's not attracted to you, Initially, it's just not going to happen. That's not the case for women. And I think yeah. if, if you meet someone that you're attracted to in a college class setting and you're a guy, you might actually have time, weeks to get to know the woman, to kind of woo her. But when you're dealing with these either club interactions, online dating interactions, that's not happening. And it's really, I think, changed the the way that uh, you know men are able to pitch themselves. Yeah, no, that's totally true. And you, you, you're, you're so right about that as well. Uh, a lot of the time, and I, I know lots of men like this, where their, their wives weren't initially into them, mm -hmm. but once he starts displaying admirable qualities around her, just, you know, hanging out with friends or whatever, then he becomes more interesting. And so she is more won over by him. Um, one, one thing that um, I'm, I'm continually baffled at that, I, and the internet loves these videos and I actually loathe these videos is the on the street question with an attractive woman. It's like, how much does a man have to earn to get? A oh, I love those. They're terrible I, for society, I, but I love them. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying they're not good content, right? I'm saying they're, they're bad for young men, especially 100%. and young women. Right. Um, because the answer young men is why are you asking a woman a question actually? Like, why are you asking? What you're asking is, what's her ideal? It's like, sure, okay, well, what's your ideal? Well, my ideal is six foot blonde, tiny waist, massive bum, massive boobs. And every woman's going, well, I don't have that, actually, you know, I'm actually a bit normal. And it's like, yeah, okay, and trust me, he's going to settle for an attractive woman who loves him, actually. And these women will as well. Like, you don't actually have to have the Bugatti. What you have to do is enchant her. You have to make her love you for who you are and what you are and the kind of way you make her feel and all of that. And then I tell you what, man, then this is another thing that young men don't understand. Women will forgive fucking anything <laughs> if they love you. <laughs> you know, women will go out with the poorest dirt bag you've ever met if she is in some way enchanted with him. And that's, that's the trick. Yeah. And I feel like when I look at the red pill community and a lot of the, I, I guess the, the comments that surround those videos of the, you know, the, the kind of bimbos giving these ridiculous answers as to what the requirements for a man are, it's almost as if 
they they are coming from like they're coming at dating from a very almost detached perspective of like oh well women say this and I don't fit it therefore I will never never get married and it's like you don't actually you don't need to be uh some chad six foot two millionaire uh despite what you might see online as women saying like yeah i want that i mean i i bring this up to people all the time but i'm obsessed with those documentaries about uh terrible birth deformities conjoined twins you name it what's interesting is those people are almost always married, right? Yeah. You know, the, the carnival man with the lobster claws, yeah. he had like seven kids and he was also yeah. abusive. So he's also like a literal circus freak who is a jerk, but he still manages to court somebody. And, and you're I, still I, single. Yeah, and you're still <laughs> single. Sadly, yeah. But I feel like no, there's, yeah, but there's this, I, I don't know if it's because we, we've become more socially detached, but there's this idea that uh, they're making dating into almost this, like professional degree where you have to have but that's not how it actually works and even within the chat right now we have a lot of or we have at least several people who are saying it's just it's not worth it for men to go out and date nowadays because you have me too because you have uh divorce you know the the biased court systems Mm -hmm. what would you say to that i guess almost despair that some men might feel looking at the dating scene i mean i think it's quite justified frankly (laughs) i i Again, I, I, I'm looking at this very much from an outsider, but what you see seems to justify the despair. I mean, the the problem is, I think, is selection bias. So the clips that go viral are the worst kinds of women and the worst mm-hmm. kinds of men. And the sort of people who are good at getting attention because what they are like is awful in a way. Um, but again, I mean, you know, for, for those clips, how much did her last boyfriend earn? It probably wasn't six figures. It probably, you know, blah, 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 right? So don't worry about those things. Don't worry about those people because the chances are you're not actually going to meet someone like that. Like, if you're living just in some random town, you probably know half the women in the town anyway just through osmosis, just through having met them in social interactions. Like, think of the actual people you know. Connor's and if you're like, well, I live in a big city. Connor's, and it's like, well, signaling you in the chat, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, well, I, don't worry, I'm actually going to get to that. Um, it it will absolutely seem justified, and I don't doubt that in some places it's justified. In most regular places that are just normal, women will be basically normal, and that means not evil, not trying to screw over men as a class, blah, 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 right? Um, if you're living in a big city like LA, well you chose to go and live in LA. You get the kind of woman who lives in LA, right? Don't live in these places. Find normal people. You've got to be the person who's the judge of character in your life. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's almost a, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy for, for a lot of these red pillars. They, they kind of go down the rabbit hole of, you know, oh, this statistic and this statistic without actually, and that's something, I don't know if you're familiar with Pearl Davis. Um, I am familiar, yes. Yeah, I, I I hope to have her on the show at some point. She's she has an open invite so far. She hasn't accepted, but um, you know, there's a lot of try, and it's 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 kind of ironic because red pill, the term obviously from the Matrix, it's supposed to describe seeing the world as it is. They like to pride themselves with saying like, oh well, you know, eighty percent of divorces are initiated by women. Therefore, like you're 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 basically doomed to get divorced. They they conflate statistics in such a way that it they make it seem as if you're two college educated people and it's your first marriage, 80% chance of divorce, which is actually untrue. Uh, you know, if, if you're both 
well-educated people and you don't have divorce in your families, the the likelihood of you getting divorced are relatively no. Now, for people in the chat, that doesn't mean I don't think we should address inequalities in in the court systems because, of course, we should. But I I do have an issue with the doomer mentality that some of these communities tend to propagate, especially I'm coming at this from a, you know, a Christian perspective. I want strong families. I want people to get married and have kids. I think it's what's best for society. So I'm actually of the opinion now, I'm not just going to say, Oh, red pillars are just like feminists. That's not true. But I think the end goal where it's, we're enforcing the atomization of people. We are contributing to the downfall of society, uh, normalizing hookah culture. I think that Mm. is pretty similar in the two movements. Yeah, like, like I said, I think it's a selection bias. Um, the headline-grabbing, attention-grabbing viral tweets and clips are the worst ones. But like I said, I think if you just go outside and just talk to, you know, when you're going around the supermarket, like, weirdly in Britain, a lot of couples meet at the supermarket. I don't know why, like, you know, I, I don't know what, like, is the reason for that. But I think that most women are probably just basically normal. And I think most men are probably just basically normal and just go to a few social gatherings. You know, you've got to get out of your comfort zone sometimes, go and meet some regular people and you might find you might meet some nice ones. And I completely agree with this. It's not to say that the court system doesn't need fixing because it is a hangover from a, a, a much, a much more different past. Um, but things, things I don't think are as tragic as people are making out. And like you say, um, saying that 80% of divorces are initiated by women is not the same as saying 80% of people get divorced. And even if that's true, you could be in that 20% that doesn't. It isn't an act of God. It isn't just a, like a volcanic explosion that happens. Uh, relationships work when you work at them. The strength of the relationship. Think of it literally like a rope that you're weaving between two people. And if you don't spend any of your time weaving that rope, and if she doesn't spend any of her time weaving that rope, then it just frays and it breaks and then you end up going apart. And that's the end of the relationship. But when you're both working on it for each other, then actually it becomes stronger. And that's making me think, Christ, I'm gonna have to go buy my my wife some flowers. I haven't (laughs) bought her flowers in a long time. (laughs) But it's that kind of thing, you know, the small surprises that show the other person that you love them, the small acts of kindness that you do that make their lives a little bit easier. Honestly, you're you're the one who guarantees whether your relationship goes sour or not. You're the one who does it. So, you know, you, it isn't it isn't random. And I think for for a lot of people who maybe have grown up perpetually online, which I think I'm just just a little bit older uh, to have not experienced that. The idea that oh, it's actually my own decision. I can make my own social way. It's not just. I, I'm a slave to the statistics. That's almost scary to some people. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, which I which I understand, but I don't think it's it's call for, I guess the the black pilling that I see for a lot of young men. Uh, I do want to get to some super chats. Uh, Svelter gamer, good morning all. Love the stream, Lauren. Thank you so much. Yankee lover one hundred. Sargon, is there any way I can find your Gamergate content circa twenty fourteen to twenty fifteen? Thanks, a fan. Uh, it's on Bitshoot. Bitch shoot. Oh yeah, I haven't haven't thought about them in a while. I feel like there's so yeah. many platforms to keep up nowadays. Um, Matthew Hammond, if we do not Franco or Pinochet commies, then how do we push back against them in Western countries? Do we need to revive tent revivals uh, like Billy Graham had in the 1950s? How do we push back against the commies? Um, 
I mean, obviously, we have to keep holding the line as we are, because otherwise they'll take more territory. Um, but it's just become apparent that we're not winning the war, right? Ideologically, we're not winning the war. And so we have to address why we're not winning that war. And I think we're not winning that war because of the promises that liberalism makes at the very beginning. And so what we need to do is devise another system for ourselves. Um, this isn't impossible. This, you know, we're not, right, okay, here are the three ideologies, communism, fascism, and liberalism, and that's it for all time. That's, that's really not how it has to be. These things aren't eternal. They aren't immutable. They aren't persistent. Uh, they, they persist as long as we allow them to. And we can change them at any time. Um, what we need to do is just say, okay, what is it we actually want? What is it we genuinely believe? Because another thing as well is that liberalism, communism, and fascism, they don't have any kind of monopoly on any of the things that they say are good things, right? If if they're the sort of three heads of the Enlightenment Hydra, um, we don't have to be committed to the original Enlightenment presupposition that reason is the only way of gaining knowledge about the world like and, and figuring out anything about the world. That, that's not true. Like, people gain knowledge through the world through experience, through without thinking about it at all. Like there are other there are other kinds of knowledge, and so the the quest that I think that faces us really is not to abandon reason, but what it is is to put it in its proper place. Because at the moment, what the Enlightenment did is made it the only thing that's important. The only thing is what I think in the horizon of my infinite mind, and actually, our mind is a lot more finite than we realised, and actually, we still don't know what we're doing really. Uh, but we have got thousands of years that we can look back on of trial and error. And we can use that in accordance, in conjunction with our reason, in order to go forward into the future. And suddenly we end up with a much, much different way of looking at the world. Suddenly we realise, actually, man isn't universal, we're not interchangeable, we're not all the same. Some people are actually different to us, and we don't really understand those people at all. And actually things could be completely different. And it's okay for us to take care of our own civilization. It's okay for us to not worry about their civilization. That's actually their problem. You know, that's actually not our problem at all. And so, actually, when, when the universal mandate of liberalism is just abandoned, you realize that we can just look after ourselves and they're not our, they're our, our issue at all. I almost have a, a similar position with regard to freedom and libertarianism. You, you know, you mentioned not holding rationality as almost like this sacred calf. I, I view in in some ways freedom in the same way. And I, I have a lot of libertarian followers. I've always said I'm not a libertarian if I had to. Describe, I hate the government, but I would almost lean more toward minarchism just because the libertarian movement is, is – I mean it's like the feminist movement. You can like equality for women but not want to be a feminist. I'm like that with libertarianism. Um, I, I believe freedom is a good, but I would never call it the ultimate good. And I feel like a lot of libertarians, they will place freedom as a concept – uh, above all else, even if it's if it means the demise of our entire civilization and the fact that that freedom will only be short lived because we live in a democracy, um, but it's it's something that it's it's almost hard to reconcile with what what do we do then? Okay, we have all of these critiques of these different things. I'm at a position where I hate the government, but I am not above cynically using it for my own advantage when appropriate. And I've been called a hypocrite for, uh, yeah. you know, supporting things like, yeah, let's parental rights and education. Let's go hard. Let's actually go on the offense for once. Hmm. But I mean, I'm at I'm at a point now where we, would you rather be consistent to these enlightenment principles or would you rather win against the communists? It kind of feels like you can't have both right now. <laughs> well, that's because the communists are the one being consistent to the enlightenment principles, as I explained yeah, at the that's... beginning. That's why they keep winning the argument. <laughs> uh, and so 
the the question shouldn't be about well i need to service liberalism right because that's essentially what all of this is about um it's okay well how can we most live in accordance with liberal principles it's like how about i just don't give a fuck about liberal principles and i just do what's good and i look around and do things that are virtuous and i actually continue building and helping and making things decent <coughs> and actually you'll notice that the world just gets better on its own when you do those things i like it uh silas larson War veterans often have a hollowed sense of their nation and flag, even if they have more real reasons to be dated about bureaucrats and government opportunists. So a little commentary about tradition and I, I suppose the metaphysics behind it all. Creeper weirdo. This is so cool. And if you guys are looking for guests for your respective podcasts, may I suggest Jonathan Peugeot. A talk on symbolism would be very interesting. JP McGlone, or sorry, that I, I know this guy. That was like his old username of uh, the McGlone code. Hi, Lauren. Great chat as always, Carl. I pray you'll do as I did and put your faith in Christ, who is who he says he is in the Bible, even if you don't understand, believe first, then understand. And so something about that I've, um, you know, I've been tweeting up a storm, getting people mad at me, kind of looking at Islam and Judaism. I'm just alienating myself from everybody, basically. And something that I've <laughs> found um really interesting is that muslims will not find it offensive if you've tried if you're trying to convert them because they're also trying to convert you i have muslim yeah. friends i took middle east studies um this is something that i'm used to judaism a lot of the jewish community actively finds it offensive if you try to convert them as an atheist are you offended when people you know might say that you, they're they're praying for you or, or specifically no, no. praying that you find faith in god no, not at all. Um, I, it's actually a very kind thing to say, because that, that shows that you're in their thoughts and they care about you. Uh, they're just expressing it in a way that I don't understand. You know, it doesn't like it, it's not it's not at all bad. It's obviously a kind thing that they're suggesting they're saying. Um, and it, like, if I could just choose, I probably would choose to be a Christian, because like I said, I know lots of Christians. They're all kind people and they're all happy. And I'm not unhappy or anything, but like, it, it just would be, you know, if there was a button I could press to right, become Christian, I'd probably just do it. Just, okay, why not? You know, what, mm -hmm. what would I lose? You know, I, I looked to, as far as I can tell, I've looked to everything to gain, right? I just don't want to be inauthentic. And, right. you know, I feel, I feel like it may be some sort of disability that being <laughs> born and raised in a secular liberal society has given me, but whatever part of you that, that does that, I just don't seem to have. Um, and okay, fair enough. That's my curse, you know, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, there's nothing offensive about uh, Christian saying, I'm gonna pray for you. Nothing, nothing at all. Hmm. Um, Zeranex, Zeranex, sorry. Uh, dating is low, low tier, three star red light district shopping, especially with how it's discussed. Mm. Poor foundation for marriage with women who aren't wives slash husbands and expect to be magically made into such. Ooh. I mean, that, but that that's totally true and that in you know in a lot of places like i said right i i bet that and i'm not speaking i mean i'm not an american but like if if you were to go uh to like a fairly small rural town with a few thousand people in it i bet the women there are much more marriageable material than walking along in la and right. you know meeting someone who's trying to get ahead there right it's it's they're going to be just worlds apart but he is right that the the millennials, I think, successfully made relationships transactional enough 
that the Zoomers don't know anything else and they're having problems describing what they want out of relationships that doesn't involve a transaction. One of the things I absolutely loathe, loathe when young men say is what do you bring to the table? It's like, really, do you want to write up a contract, do you? You're going to shake fucking hands on it, are you? What are you? What the fuck are you talking about? You're looking for a wife? You're looking to be the woman who's going to be like the, the fulcrum of your life from here on out. And it's like, oh, what do you, I, I want a list of bullet points. Shut the fuck up. You've been perverted by the millennials and their contract society. Like they want a fucking contract every time you sit down and have sex. Right. I consent. I consent. Brilliant. Better get the government signature too. Brilliant. Fucking. You, you don't understand how far you have fallen from what being in love is when you ask that question. And that's what that chap was saying there. It's all just, you know, you may as well be asking for a prostitute and asking for the services she's going to render to you. You know, you don't ask that fucking question. If you need to ask a woman that question, she ain't the one, move on. You know, if you can't tell why she would be good, she's not the one, just move on. And it, that actually reminds me of something that Destiny said about relationships. I know I'm. I'm oh yeah, let's take his advice. Uh, yeah, but he um he did make a good point. Whereas that you know, oh, we yeah. can go over the what did you bring to the table stuff all 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 we want, but ultimately, probably what the majority of your relationship succeeding or failing is going to come come down to is are you able to get along with each other on the day to day? Do you love each other? Can you build a life together? And unfortunately for the internet age, the data age, that's not something that's necessarily quantifiable. That's just something you have to go and live and experience. And again, like I don't think Gen Z likes that idea. Really? Um, so it's, it's non-rationalistic wisdom, is it? I suppose so. I told you it's from it's a, destiny on top of it all a, from all and from, from the most successful husband in the world. Yes. I, I don't mean to dunk on destiny because I actually quite like destiny, but like everyone knew man, everyone knew <laughs> that was not going to end. Well, everyone told him literally everyone on the internet told him and look how it ended up. So yeah, sad stuff. Um, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Really quick before you go, though, I do want to touch on the issue of immigration um, oh, because that's something that I feel like every every single Western country is just being overwhelmed with right now. Uh, Canada, I, I, I feel like the the number of immigrants that they're claiming they, they're letting in versus what they're actually doing, it's always after the fact we find out, oh, actually, we exceeded our targets. Funny that. Yeah. Uh, same with the United States. Open border, pretty much just come mm -hmm. on in. It's fine. Uh, we'll even give you a bunch of money. The UK, unfortunately, it's not seeming to fare any better. Uh, oh, it's exactly who, the same. Exactly yeah, the and same I, problem. I, I don't recall who it was who posted it first, but there was this infographic going on online um, uh, of the different, I guess, counties, whatever it may be in, in the UK, of all the, all the people who don't support mass migration versus those who do. Those who do want more or even want current levels to be maintained, they are a very, very small minority. How is it happening that public policy has not changed to reflect that, though. It hasn't changed to reflect that in the UK, in Canada, in the US, none of these populations have ever been given uh, a vote on, hey, do you want mass migration from the third world? And yet we all have it. So Dan Tubbs, our resident economist at Lotuses.com, believes it's an economic issue. Uh, he Graph thinks that the people up. in... Sorry? Graph go up. Good. And not just the chart that. chart always um, has to be going up. That is true. Um, but it's not just that. Uh, what what he thinks is that essentially um, the economy is in such a position where it's essentially in a lock. Uh, and so the position of president or prime minister is essentially in checkmate. And any move that, that could be made from there would destroy the game, uh, the game being the international economic order. Uh, and so 
essentially every person who gets into that position finds themselves with no options. And so they do very or very, very small, insignificant options rather than addressing the main problem. Um, the main problem seems to be that we are committed to a series of pieces of public spending that we frankly can't afford to break. Uh, obviously pensions, social health care and social welfare. And if these things go, then people die, actually. Uh, there are people who rely on these to survive. Um, however, a lot of them, the pensions in particular, are kind of a pyramid scheme uh, where it requires an ever-growing population to support generations that came before us. And so if we want to have a pension scheme, we have to have mass immigration uh, because otherwise there simply won't be the money there to afford it. And the same with welfare and uh, social health care, probably, um, but definitely with pensions. And so this, I think, is what drives the state. I think this is what is driving every Western government to say, look, we just need more people because, as everyone probably knows, Western birth rates are sub-replacement. The replacement rate is 2.1, and the average like in Europe is something like 1.3, 1.4. In some countries like Italy, it's 1. So I saw an article, there was, a, I forget whether it was a week, there was a mind-bogglingly long period of time in Italy where no child was born. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it. that's civilization ending right there. Yeah. And I feel yeah, like, so... You know, when, when I talk about graph going up, there's a lot of economists, there are a lot of people in public policy who they are thinking about, okay, what about social security? It's insolvent. We need to have more people in. If if you invite more migrants in, yes, your overall GDP will continue to go up. You have more people. That's great. But what simultaneously- well, hang, hang on a are, second. Sorry. That, that's just not true. Right? I don't think it's but, great, but they think it's great. It's not even great. It's not. It's not true. Right. Because, I mean, for example, in Britain in 2022-2023, we're in 1.2 million people and the economy didn't grow at all. So it doesn't just equate to growth. Uh, what it would be is high, um, high value migrants, as in well-educated uh, people who earn money in their own country and are moving to a job, that would translate. But if it's just literally just anyone who, could who can get to your well, shores... Well, that's not the case. And that's the thing. For, we've had mass migration, maybe not of this scale, but for a while. And initially, you do have growth, like graph graph goes up. We have more people. They are doing something. So we are more profitable than we were previously. But simultaneously, people who are actually living in cities that are overrun with immigration, their quality of life is going down. Uh, social yeah. services that we're supposed to be funding with these migrants, they're actually under more stress. And what they're not understanding is that not all immigrants are created equal, right? I, I don't care about GDP overall, GDP per capita. That's what actually is an indicator of your standard of living. So, I mean, if you invite someone from Algeria who, I mean, maybe can't even read in their own language, let alone art, like you can't expect that to have the same economic output as someone who is a doctor from a different country. And I feel like I've actually been called racist and xenophobic for pointing that out uh, because the... I, I've had it said to me that the idea that there should be any screening requirements at all for immigrants is inherently racist and xenophobic and anti-liberal. The thing is, there's there's a kind of mathematical necessity here as well. Um, if you let in a million people a year and you have public health care, uh, say 5% of those will require health care. And, okay, well, they're going to have to extract from a system that they didn't pay into. 
and you say, okay, but they're going to get a job. It's like, okay, yeah. And so within a year, they'll have paid taxes. But in that year, you've brought in another million people and say 5% of those didn't needed healthcare. They haven't gotten, but they've been extracting as well. And so you're constantly compounding the problem of there will always be, and 5% is probably a lot lower than it really is. Mm. Um, but, they, you know, you're compounding this problem where every single year you're bringing in more and more people and a percentage of those, a growing percentage of those, will always be taking money out of a system they didn't pay into. And therefore the system will always be under stress for the people who are holding it up to continue to pay more into it. And so it's, again, one of those problems that just can never actually be solved while you have open borders. And ultimately, I think the reason why this is even a, a question in the first place is because the, the birth rate was so low to begin with. So I've, I also had people say, well, liberty, like why are you hounding on people who don't have kids? And it's once more, we live in a society, the fact that you are not having kids, it does a, a, a affect me personally, right? My family yeah. personally down the line because it, fe it, it feeds into this idea that we need these workers to save us from social security being installed or, you know, whatever it is, mm. name it. Well, um, th there's an interesting thing just to finish on that, I suppose, is that there's a particular kind of labor that everyone was expected to do. And that's the labor of having and rearing children. And you need to do that if you want there to be someone who's going to take care of you in your dotage. Uh, you're relying on some woman in Nigeria doing it, uh, but that class of childless people who are like, no, no, I don't need to have children. It's like, okay, but there is a requirement that humans have, and when you repudiate that, you're essentially being a parasite on other people's labor. You're saying, no, you can do that particular kind of labor that I'm refusing to do, and I intend to take advantage of it later on in life. So, you know, either way, you are absconding a duty here. And I tell you what, man, it won't be my bloody kids looking after you. You know, I'm telling you that now. My kids will know first and foremost that they take care of their parents in the way that I'm going to take care of my parents first and foremost. And hopefully for you, you can find someone because what this labor does is produce human beings. You are relying on there being people in the future. What if there aren't? What if they literally, we, cause I mean like in it, Italy, if there was zero immigration, their population would just halve in like 50 years, right? The population would just half cause there's one, a uh, one birth rate. So what if there literally just aren't enough people around? And you'd be like, well, but people in Africa, it's like, what you think they won't get access to birth control. You think they won't also have the same problems. You think they won't come here and go, oh wait, I cannot have children. I don't have to do this thing. I'm just going to not choose this. You know, of course they will, right? Like the, Europe is becoming and the West is becoming like a demographic black hole. Like people in the third world and outside, just outside of the West, should be looking and going, hang on a second. I'd like grandchildren. You can't go to the West. Like if you go to the West, you'll end up being this self-indulgent, drug-addled, drunk, fat, sycophant, just like everyone else. And you'll be so totally self-absorbed. You'll expect other people to have done this particular kind of labor for you. And that's that's the end of your bloodline that's literally the end of four and a half billion years of evolution and these people are proud of it it's like okay that's really weird but uh, i actually don't need to listen to the opinions of a genetic dead end so uh, <laughs> fuck off you know no seriously fuck off you've got no investment in society apart from yourself that doesn't go any further than when you're dead so why would i care about your opinion all your opinion is is how can i shove something into my mouth how can i inject something into my veins how can i smoke something that's all your opinion can be because you won't have an investment in the future
Mm-hmm. And I, I, I share that sentiment and it frustrates me when I see all of these videos about dinks. I don't know if you've seen those dual. I have and I'm really annoyed. I'm really annoyed. By they're, they're trying to popularize it. They're trying to make it in this cool thing. It's like, all right, you can, you have the ability to not have kids. What frustrates me is they want to not only have the freedom to do it, but also be celebrated for it and have yeah. it be viewed as almost this equally altruistic, perfectly valid choice. It's like, well, yeah. no, you cannot have kids, but you can't expect to be looked upon with the same gratitude as, as someone who has four kids that are going to be contributing to society. And, you know, they're putting that labor of love into the future. So like, no, you, you can't make a choice that essentially screws over your entire country, at least in some respect and be like, Oh, well, it's just as valid because I want to be selfish. It's not as valid. You can still do it, but it's not as valid. Exactly. And I'll tell you what, when I'm in charge, those people are going to get taxed twice as hard. I love it. Mothers would say three or more children, zero tax. Yeah, it was people who are people who have zero children twice as much tax. Perfect. Uh, so what's going to happen see. when I'm in charge? Uh, Bird Flucy William Sargon, tell the people of ancient ancient recitations. I have I have a small YouTube channel called Ancient Recitations where I just it's it's when I like when I want to read something I'll read something and often it's not very long or something and I'll just I'll just read it like I'll read it and record it and then I'll just put it up on there so it's. It's nothing particularly important, but like, if you want to listen to me reading The Prince or something like that, or The the, the Tao or something like that, that's on there. Very cool. Uh, Lenkel, I appreciate the discussion between the two of you. Sean Kennedy, what do we do about the Troon epidemic for Gen Z slash Gen Alpha? I don't think I can say on YouTube. Yeah, uh, likewise. Matthew Hammond, over 50% of immigrants in the U.S. are getting money from the government. Yep. Not surprised. Dan the Man, uh, Putin, I'm not going to say that, it's a swear. Carl needs to come to Montreal, LOL. What? Tabernacle? That's a swear in Quebec. All of, most of the... Tabernacle, yeah. It's aussi, like, <laughs> I feel really weird saying that, but... um. There's it, all of like in Quebec, most of the swear words are actually French words for the tabernacle, the chalice, yeah. like the, the chalice, the, the host. Chalice. Yeah, that's right, how it's okay. I had no idea. Quebec. Yeah. French, French Canada has religious swear words. That's oh, yeah. And they're like the worst ones. Um, right. Oh, right. Okay. So okay. watch your tongue, Dan the Man, is basically what I'm trying to say. Uh, have you ever been to Montreal? I have not. Um, I'm sure I will do one day, but. Canada's very cold. So it is. It is very cold. I was back visiting in laws uh, this Christmas and I immediately, uh, I'm so used to in Tennessee just going, driving, getting on my way. There was this, uh, we had like this ice storm and I was late already. And then I realized, oh, wait, I have to spend 20 minutes warming up the car, scraping ice off. And I told my husband right off, like, if we hadn't moved, we would move. Um, <laughs> But Carl, this has been so, so much fun. I really appreciate the time. Um, if someone for some reason is not yet following you, where are the best places to do that? Uh, Loadseaters.com is the best place. Of course, that's where my content goes. Or you can find me on Twitter, just Sargon underscore of underscore CAD. Uh, and that's pretty much about it. All right. Well, you heard it, guys. Make sure to follow him. Check out Lotus Eaters and check out all the other hosts, too. Um, They're all great guys. We'd love to have more of you folks on here. And thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, We appreciate you liking, sharing and subscribing. And just a reminder, if you want to check out the latest Blaze Original, you can do that at blazeoriginal.com and use the code Colony Ridge for money off your subscription. Until next time.